Welcome to episode 21 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. And in this episode, I'll discuss China's use of hackers and humans with former FBI Special Agent and current Senior Manager at FireEye, Rob Shutt. But before I get to Rob, let's take a look at some weekly cyber news stories. And yes, I'm trying to play with some uh, new sound effects in this podcast, so hopefully you'll bear with me as I try some new things out. So, yes, this is my news, my news bumper. Very nice, isn't it? All right, with that, let's talk about deepfakes. What are deepfakes? I read an interesting article uh, today regarding deepfakes, and deepfakes are essentially manipulations of video and pictures to make the reader believe something that's not really true. And so deep fakes are becoming an increasingly prevalent and very hard to dispute. Uh, recent research from the Queensland University of Technology is casting doubt on just how reliable our, ours can, our eyes excuse me, can now be when viewing content online. The researchers highlight how the bulk of image manipulation has been designed to drive fake news agendas, which if you looked at this particular current political cycle would not be tremendously surprised at. Social media platforms and news organizations are like are really having a tough time understanding what's real and what isn't. So if they're having a problem, you've got, got to believe that the, the normal everyday viewer and observer and consumer of news is having the same problem. The author of this particular study highlights that a huge number of visual images produced and published every day make detections harder and harder. A whopping 3.2 billion images and 720,000 hours of video are produced every day. So just think about that. Every day, this amount of information is flooded into the Internet. The Internet is large and encompassing and can, can, can hold all of this information. And so there's a growing desire among mainstream media to include user-generated material because it, it really makes them, their job easier. It's less work they necessarily have to do. And this increases the importance of journalists themselves being able to detect fake material. This particular paper in this research revealed that only 11% of journalists use any form of verification tool. So let me say that again. Only 11% of journalists are using verification tools to determine if the information that they are then taking from users and putting in their articles on their new on their video news stories are even true. So what's that mean for the rest of us? Well, cyber criminals are going to use this technology to create content it can use to fool everyone in emails, uh, and email posts and social media posts and rely on our concerns and fears and get us to click links and open documents and so on. So as I always say, take the time to question what you see and read. Use secondary and tertiary sources to verify your information. We've really become a world now that you have to kind of question everything you're seeing. As an example, the biggest news story of this week was not cyber-related. It was obviously the events that occurred in D.C. and at the Capitol building. Now, I'm not getting into the politics of all that because that's not what this particular podcast is, is about. But understand that cyber criminals and nation-state actors are going to use this event to create emails and social media posts that entice users to click on links, to open documents, and, and read articles that feed on our desire to have our biases confirmed, our political and news obsessions satisfied, and so on. So all I'm asking is really just... Take a minute, do a little follow-up to check the veracity of what you're seeing and reading, because we live in a time where intensity, or I'm sorry, where intense scrutiny of everything is really needed. You can you can see an article, you can want to believe it, but take the time to go find another source, perhaps a source you don't like. If you are on the right side of the aisle and you like certain news news outlets, go check a left side outlet to verify that the two stories are at least similar. They can be similar in the take that they have, but they at least should be similar in the facts. 
That's what we should always concern ourselves with. What are the facts? Uh, if you're on the left side, do the same thing. Go look on at a right side leaning entity just to verify, again, the facts. You don't have to take the, the, the political stance they take, but just understand the facts. And remember, only 11% of journalists are using verification tools. So you need to be your own verifier. Otherwise, you're just going to become a cyber victim, which really this podcast is designed to prevent you from becoming. Check that information, verify its its veracity. That's really a bad use of sentence structure there, but it is what it is, as I say this off the top of my head for the most part. Um, but, you know, try to try to try to protect yourself. And, you know, obviously now, in addition to the political stuff, the inauguration, I've said this a couple of podcasts, I'm just going to say it again in case this is your first time listening. But but COVID obviously is the second biggest news story, if not really the biggest news story, depending on the week you're at. And so the whole thing with vaccinations is going on. So you're going to see a lot of a lot of email traffic regarding vaccinations. And what we're starting to see as well is an online, the online selling of fictitious vaccine related products. So do not go online and purchase items online at the, on an online shop that, you know, it says it's the vaccine or will act the same as the vaccine. Go to a legitimate go to your doctor, go to a pharmacy where they have the actual vaccine and, and, um, you know, obviously get that there. And if you get an email that talks about, Hey, you have been chosen to be next in line to get the COVID vaccine, click here to register. Uh, do not do that. Prevent, uh, stop yourself from clicking on those links. Go again, go to your doctor and, and verify where and when you can get your particular shot. So again, the inauguration the COVID stuff is still the big thing that, that bad guys are targeting on to get us to click on links and open documents that are going to do nothing more than compromise our data and have bad things happen. I got an email yesterday. Let's see if I can pull it up here real quick. I should have it already prepared, but I got an email yesterday from a website called Have I Been Pwned? And Pwned is spelled P-W-N-E-D. And this is really not a headline of an email you want to see, but it says, you are one of 2,330,735 people pwned in the GlowFox data breach. So the first question I had, and probably the first question you have is, what the hell is GlowFox? I have no idea. So I read the description. It says, in March 2020, the Irish gym management software company GlowFox, G-L-O-F-O-X, suffered a data breach which exposed 2.3 million records. This data included email addresses, names, phone numbers, genders, date of birth, and, of course, passwords stored, so stored as unsalted MD5 hashes, meaning they were not really protected. This is problematic. So what is, I think, what GlowFox is, I believe it creates management software for things like CrossFit. I used to belong to a CrossFit gym, um, but based on my age and my particular physical capabilities, I wasn't really able to stick with it. But they had uh, an application you could download on your phone that allowed you to register your workouts. My guess is this is what this particular, I haven't done a lot of research into it, but this is what this particular website does. Because otherwise, I'm not sure why I would be going to an online, an Irish gym management software company, except for uh, CrossFit. Now, the problem I have, I don't remember what password I used for that. So if they have my username and password, this is certainly problematic. But if you are a CrossFit member or you use any kind of uh, information like this, then your your data may also be exposed. If you want to know where your information has been stolen, the website is called Have I Been Pwned? It's H-A-V-E-I-B-E-N-P-W-N-E-D.com. You put in your address, your email address, and it will tell you which data breaches you have your information has been stolen from. I, I strongly suggest checking that out because if you realize the password you were using on some of these sites that have been compromised, then you can at least go and change 
that password if you're using it similarly anywhere else. So that is the risk that is posed by this is the reuse of emails across other accounts. So take a look at that. Have I been pwned? Make sure you're, you know where your information has been stolen from and take the efforts to protect yourself. All right, well, welcome to the show, Rob Shutt. Rob is a former FBI agent out of the Dallas and Kansas City offices. I'll let him explain his his background. And currently he is a senior manager, vice president, I forget what your title is, at FireEye. But Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Darren. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's uh, really, really nice of you to bring me on to have this opportunity to uh, tell some more stories, tell some uh, good times, bad times, and kind of make fun of the Bureau all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, because because I, I think in previous podcasts, I've talked about somewhat my my issues with headquarter program managers, and you were one of my program managers, but you were one of the good ones. So that's why, that's why I'm bringing you on, because I, I appreciate the help you gave me when I was a Cleveland supervisor. So... Thank you. Even though the pain I probably provided you as well. We could talk about that later. So let's talk about first about uh, what you did before the FBI and then and what made you decide to join and, and where'd you go once you got in? Yeah. All right. So I am a graduate of Northwest Missouri State University um, in a small little city in Maryville, Missouri, in, in the northwest corner. And uh, then I grew up in Missouri and uh, they had a they were way ahead of their time, in my opinion, with their computer programs uh, and degrees. So it was a, it was a no brainer uh, to go there. And, you know, while I was there, I was just a total cyber nerd and just geeked out uh, while I was on the track team. And it, I mean, just great great intro to you know what was coming down the pipe for me and uh, and I got recruited out of college by Sprint and was working for them as one of their just desktop technicians right I would go and I'd fix a desktop PC and move along and uh, manage some people uh, then ended up you know building their uh, server virtual machines and their desktop virtual machines uh, everything that they needed to set the stage for the next 10 years for them and then uh, the FBI came calling and uh, because I'd put in my application just like anybody else through, uh, I don't even know if the FBI jobs website was up by then, but um, just go to the website, apply, get a call about uh, um, a year and a half later, and uh, they moved me on to, you know, the first phase, the testing phase, <laughs> and that was done out of Kansas City. And uh, so fast forward to that, um, make it into the bureau and uh, go through Quantico where uh, they take all the uh, experienced, wonderful, individual, top of the line workers and thinkers, thought leaders and make us all dress alike, act alike, speak alike and uh, do all the same things and not be an individual ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least for, for 16 weeks anyway. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so then uh, we ended up at, um, My first office was Dallas, which was my first choice. And most of you uh, didn't get uh, your first choice in the bureau, right? You know, you was way down the list. And uh, but Dallas seemed like a very good landing spot, as uh, as you've talked about in some of the other uh, podcasts or, you know, other people have mentioned online is, you know, you you can't go back to your home city typically unless it's a major, major metropolitan city. Uh, Otherwise, it restricts some of your movement of what you do. So uh, off to Dallas, I went and I got a call about two weeks before I got there and they said you will be working counterintelligence and my first thought was all right um, I guess I better brush up on my uh, international politics because I have not been paying attention to that whatsoever (laughs) but that's what you agree to right you're gonna serve at the uh, pleasure of the bureau so from uh, in Dallas um, that's where I landed on my uh, 
uh, when I, I had, well, let me back up. I had really good teachers in Dallas uh, being in counterintelligence. These people that really knew it, they had uh, worked on the surveillance squads. Uh, they were Mandarin speakers. They, they really knew what was going on. And we had a little bit of everything in Dallas. Uh, all the nation states were there. Uh, the Houston consulate would send people through a lot. Um, it was a good area um, for Cubans to come through. It was, it was a really interesting environment to work in. Had a lot of fun. Learned a ton. But the whole time I was doing it, I kept thinking, why are these guys going to do dead drops and signal sites, brush passes? Why, why are they going to do traditional counterintelligence when they could be just taking it, take it via cyber? And, uh, but I didn't get much traction because these people had no skill in it. You know, the cyber was, you know, almost a dirty word in the FBI at that time. Right. You know, it was, it was when people stole things, that was really all it was. What year was this, by the way? That was, sorry, that was 2004, 2005. Okay. And so in 2005, um, one evening I uh, got a call and says, hey, tomorrow morning we're heading over to Lockheed Martin. They found something. They uh, want to share it with us, and, uh, and they're really not sure what it is. And uh, at that time, I was working uh, with Air Force OSI, Chris Gore, uh, just an amazing counterintelligence agent. And we landed there, and they proceeded to give us three to four hours of uh, explanation as to what they were seeing. And, uh, and they're saying, look, we, we've never seen this before. All we know, it's bad, and we really need some help. And uh, so, you know, and help we did. We sat down together with them, uh, almost like a camaraderie to figure out what was happening. And it was coming straight from China, you know, not through hot points, not through anything. It was right to and from China. And so they, they immediately had a handle on that, but then we thought, well, there's definitely going to be more going on. So this was, you know, what's your big target? Well, it's the F-35, the joint strike fighter, which was in their office. And we were then uh, dedicated to uh, a different case. Uh, sometimes they call those major cases in the Bureau, but this was a technology protection case. So you uh, are able to coordinate with all the other field offices that have a piece of these big cases, uh, but it's not a major case, which is probably due to funding or particular uh, techniques you might be able to run. But in this case, we worked with them hand in glove for years and years. Uh, they were a great teammate in everything we did. And if it wasn't for the defense contractors stepping up and sharing with us the way we did, you know, there's no way we'd be where we are today. Great. And so, so, so that was, but you didn't, but then you moved to cyber from that, correct? Right. The the discovery of all this prompted the move in late 2005, and they, they could not understand why there was a guy with the cyber background that he had in the office that was working counterintelligence. So they picked me up, put me over there, and now we launched the National Security Cyber Program. And how much of the JSF did China get, ultimately, if you know or can tell? Well, you know, we had so many meetings about that. Um, you know, there was the infamous Crystal City hack, which, uh, you know, made the news, which really, I think, opened the eyes of a lot of people because when they were able to say, we can tell you how many, how much gigabyte of data was taken, but we can't tell you what yet, um, that was where everybody kind of got on guard and said, you know, this is, this is going to be really bad. Uh, what is going on? So what did they take, you know, they had so many 
thousands of collection agents scattered across the world to try to run traditional counterintelligence to try to do you know just cyber infiltration infiltration methods they did everything they could to take with anything that was available. I mean, I remember being at the, <laughs> of all things, so they had the JSFX, which was the prototype uh, body workup. It was sitting out at Dulles um, Smithsonian uh, Museum, right, the Aerospace Museum. And uh, while I was there uh, taking in this magnificent museum, there were uh, two Chinese, obvious Chinese individuals frantically taking pictures of every angle uh, <laughs> they could of this mock-up that is on public display so and then then walking out hurriedly like they had just you know uh discovered the whole thing and it was it was just interesting because they they were everybody go and do this for the motherland but you know without hardly any direction whatsoever for your just general collection piece but they got they took unfortunately they took a lot but the the important thing is the jet is flying it is going to be the most advanced warfighter we have. And, you know, and I think all of us that put time into that case helped protect the logistics of it, the pieces of it that need to keep it on top for a long time. So you're, you were a unicorn at the time because in 2004 or five, that, that kind of time frame, there weren't a lot of people in the FBI and there still aren't really to this day, I would say that have a, have that dual experience of working both cyber and counterintelligence. You, you would at a, in a kind of a reverse method that I did where you were, counterintelligence first, then moved to cyber. I was cyber, moved to counterintelligence. But all that being said, I assume that helped you get your your ultimate promotion to headquarters to go work in the national security section, correct? That's correct, yeah. So from what I'm told is I was one of the first dual certified in counterintelligence and uh, espionage and then also cyber certified. So um, yeah, you're right. It was We were a rare breed that had both sides of the coin at that time in the FBI because, you know, there wasn't anything called an APT. There wasn't anything that, you know, we just knew it was these bad countries and they operated a little bit differently from area to area to, to mission to mission. So, yeah, um, I wrote on that a lot and, you know, what we call our promotion package, right, uh, uh, to get to headquarters. You have to you have to apply for the headquarters job. Right. And uh, without going too much into that process. But um, I wrote a lot on our success with the Joint Strike Fighter case and the way we were working with all these different industries. I had a really uh, good supervisor in Dallas, uh, a couple good supervisors. But the cyber supervisor, I didn't know why she was doing it at the time, but it made sense later. She was always writing me up, you know, just here and there, little emails or little, you know, just recognition awards, um, which, as you know, in the promotion package matters so much. That was Dee Snyder. She helped. Uh, what she was doing at the time, I was like, no, I, I, I need resources. I need you to help me travel. I need you to do this. But, you know, instead she was writing these memos, you know, for accomplishments and like, I don't, I don't need recognition. I just, I just want you to help me work the case. But then, of course, when it came to the promotion package, I thought, oh, that's why you were doing all that. So, yep, got selected in, um, uh, well, I landed at headquarters in November of 2009 and uh, was assigned to the China unit and uh, replaced it, uh, replaced the um, program manager that I don't think you're too big a fan of, <laughs> but uh, um, I ended up with uh, your office yeah. and uh, we immediately started talking because you had a couple of uh, pretty big cases uh, while we were working. Yeah, one of the, so in this time frame, 2009, China was using a lot of U.S. infrastructure to launch their attacks. I know in Cleveland, we had several cases where there had been entities in Cleveland that had been targeted um, or had been compromised, but they were launching 
launching their attacks not against that particular entity. It was they were launching it against U.S. government institutions, and we were able to kind of monitor and watch that. So talk a little bit about that particular tradecraft in that time frame, because I don't, China doesn't do it anymore because in 2013, we released all the, the, the five indictments against the Chinese that said, here's how we know who you are, and they moved all their, their methodologies. But talk a little bit about that at that time. What was your unit doing in 2009, 2010 to deal with China and to make, well, I mean, parts of the USIC, I think, understood it. But there was still a problem in the FBI in the sense that there was a cyber issue going on, but counterintelligence didn't want to touch the cyber piece. Cyber didn't really want to touch the counterintelligence piece and try to target the individuals. Talk about that dichotomy and how you had to kind of battle that based on your experience. Yeah, it's a great point and a topic area. So we formed, before there was the NCIJTF, there was the CIJTF, which was ran out of Washington field office by um, just a handful of people, uh, which then got its national charter, which opened the you know, open my position that I eventually got. And it was built solely because counterintelligence refused to work with cyber. I mean, they just would not cooperate. We would be finding these just, you know, gold mines, right? You know, diamond mines. We, we'd be discovering these and passing them to counterintelligence saying, hey, let's go do some cool stuff. And they would say, you know, their mindset was, well, you're never going to arrest these people. You're never going to be able to, you know, to uh, recruit them, compromise them, the ultimate missions of counterintelligence. So why are you wasting your time? And I mean, that was, they would use those words right to us. I mean, they didn't want to sacrifice any resources, nothing. It was, it was like, we were just this uh, junior uh, kid, you know, a, a fresh case agent out of Quantico. They didn't want to talk to or deal with. And it was quite frustrating, but you're right. All that domestic infrastructure that the Chinese adversary had built was uh, allowed us to start hoovering up all this data uh, by all uh, by people that wanted to be do the right thing and want to be good citizens and share with us what was going on. And so had it not been for good case agents having good conversations with people, we would have struggled to build that type of platform to see and understand what was going on. And yeah, they, they didn't care about their OPSEC, right? They would just, mm -hmm. they, they would launch directly to these points, compromise them, whether they wanted to steal from them or not, burrow in with, and get full root or admin access, active directory admin access, and then start launching attacks. And uh, we would have to pick this up and explain it to, you know, the defense contractor or the pharmaceutical company or pick your major industry that they were interested in stealing from. We would have to do that. And, uh, and it ended up building some massive cases, a lot of innovation. Uh, it led to their poor OPSEC actually led to uh, work, my work with uh, the NCAJTF DC3 out of Lincoln, Maryland, Chris Sperry. Um, he and I put together what now is known as APT2 or Putter Panda. Their OPSEC was so bad. I mean, the guy registered domains nearly by his name, you know, which they, no one does that, right? And, or they do it through a hidden registrar now. But back then, they knew we weren't taking any action. They didn't, they knew that there, there was no problem with them doing it. So, I mean, this guy had his, uh, one day I was, <laughs> I'd been told no to something. So usually as a case agent, when you're told no, you go back and you figure out a different way to do it and, uh, and get a yes. Right. Yeah. So in this case, um, I thought, well, if they're not going to let me have a FISA on this guy, well, because I don't have enough predication, well then what else can I learn about the guy to get predication? And, uh, just on a whim, I checked to see if he had left, um, 
you know, what a, of his Google account he uh, had left open and he left open his photo album, which I pulled down pictures of himself. You know, he takes some selfies, took a picture of his wife. And then there was the one uh, folder in his album that uh, I walked right to the translator and I said, what does this say? And she says, it says office. And, uh, and sure enough, it was his office, which we later realized it was the uh, 12th Bureau uh, with uh, the help of another fantastic analyst who recognized the satellite dish array that the guy had taken <laughs> pictures of at his office. So, um, hey, you know who'd be really interested in this? This would be the NSA. So, you know, now now you've got another ally on your hands because um, what is uh, what are our friends in the NSA and CIA like? They love uh, somebody giving them information. So. Right. There we went. I used to I used to like that they used to use their compromised U.S. infrastructure to order stuff from Amazon and ship it to themselves. That was always my favorite. <laughs> yeah, that was great. And movie tickets, you know, <laughs> right. those were the best things ever. You know, it's like, hey, you want attribution? Here you go. Right. So after headquarters, you spent the time there, 18-month TDY, I assume, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, 18 months TDY. Uh, uh, I had planned to maybe make it uh, a little bit longer there, but I wasn't sure. I wanted to see what the where I could do uh, the most good, where I could make the most change, uh, because we were getting some momentum, right? People were really finally believing what we were telling them. Um, I actually had some uh, super, uh, field supervisors on my side by that time, yeah. <laughs> you included. Yep, yep. Um, Yep. Yeah. So it was planned to be an 18 month and uh, I had some uh, family needs that uh, had to pull me back to Kansas City. So how'd you get to Kansas City? Because you didn't go there as a supervisor, correct? You stepped down and they sent you there. Is that correct? Or how does how did that work exactly? Yeah, so um, Jan Saylor was the uh, supervisor at the time, and she had a she was also at the NCIJTF, but she was a supervisor at Kansas City, and I kept in touch with her um, as a friend and as a colleague, and um, she had told me, hey, my retirement's going to be coming up here in you know about a year and a half, and uh, they offered me my uh, preferred relocation to Kansas City, and because of the family needs, uh, I decided to you know had that conversation, thought about it, prayed on it, decided it was the right thing to do and headed back to Kansas city on that reload. And that's when the, uh, Subin case launched literally while the moving truck was sitting in my, in, across my driveway, uh, unloading boxes. I was helping the crew and, uh, and I got a call and it said, Hey, you need to head into the office right now and get on the red phone, which meant NSA needed to talk to me. And, uh, and you need to hear what they have to say. And I, was, I I'm not even badged in. And they <laughs> said, you better figure it out. So, um, called up Jan, Jan said, well, I know where it is, but I don't even have access. <laughs> so we had to call some other people that had access to that room, get us in. And then I proceeded to get a debrief for about an hour and a half on what became the, uh, Sue Bin, uh, espionage investigation. And this is a good, this is a good case to talk about because it shows the, the use by China of their, or the, not the use, but the, the blending of their cyber tradecraft and their human tradecraft. I'm have some familiarity with this case because we kind of flipped roles where you were helping to program manage my office in Cleveland. And then at the time, the, the new incoming assistant director of counterintelligence was my SAC in Cleveland, Frank Fagluzzi. And he decided, he, he kind of recognized that cyber and counterintelligence were, were, were something. I'm not sure what exactly he, he, he knew they were, but he knew it was something. Um, because every Every, and this is just kind of a funny inside story, but every every week we would have a supervisor's conference in Cle in Cleveland where you talk about what your cases are. 
and I had some cases that people in the room didn't need to know what we were doing. It was from a, you know, from a need to know basis. Not everybody in that room, the, the, you know, the finance officer didn't need to know the cyber national security case that we were running. So basically they go around the room, everybody talk about their case and they get to me and I would just say, China's still bad. That was pretty much what I said for about a year and a half with China's still bad. Uh, and so I ended up going, he, he created a unit that he embedded counterintelligence agents in the cyber division. This was not a new thing. There were already counterintelligence agents embedded there, but they were like one site, one counterintelligence agent on the China cyber squad and one on the Russia squad or two on the Russia squad, whatever. So he consolidated that into a unit to try to target the human side of this. Cause that's really counterintelligence is game is to, to um, dismantle and disrupt and neutralize the human element. Well, these cyber actors were not coming to the United States. So there's no way we're going to, we were going to compromise them that way. So my unit was there to, to try to find the person on the other end of the keyboard and do whatever. And then, then Rob Shuck comes back into my life one day on a cold call I get and goes, hey, Darren, I wonder if you can help me out. Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> yep. I definitely needed allies and advocates that understood. You know, I didn't want to have to start over at the, at the training and an explanation as to all this was. So you know, I was very grateful to have some allies up there to, to start taking some of these leads and working pieces of the complexities of this case. Right. So let's talk the Subin case a little bit because it's a lot of it's open source. He's been arrested and was he, is he in jail still? Uh, according to uh, his um, punishment, and which we definitely need to change, uh, he was only the maximum was five years, and I think they uh, gave him four and a half years uh, with, uh, um, I think, a million dollar in fines or something. But it just you know insignificant compared to the damage he did. But right. he is he's probably out right now. Yeah. So that's so we got to the end of the case before we got to the start of the case. But talk a little bit about the start of the case. What was he doing? How was he, you know, from a cyber perspective, how was he different? How did he, how did his actions impact what the cyber actors did? And what was his role? Sure. Yeah, it, it is a fantastic case. And you're exactly right. Because if there was, if there was a moment to come along for us to really explain to the two units at headquarters, this is why we have to work together. It was this case because um, originally, I don't believe uh, that the counterintelligence division wanted to touch it. Uh, but what we had to do very quickly is we had established foreignness with just what our uh, what the National Security Agency had passed us. It gave the FBI foreignness right away. So we were able to get up on a new intercept uh, and then start looking at uh, very slowly. It's a long methodical process with a lot of approvals, but we were able to see what was going on. But the reason Kansas City got it is there was a person in Kansas City that Subin had physically visited. Like he spent the night here in Kansas City and visited with this guy. So on the counterintelligence side, you know, those are those are slam dunk leads. You always want to go out and set up a knock and talk with these people, knock and talk, you know, knock on the door. Hey, can we talk to you about stuff? Um, in this particular case, this guy had already been contributing because he was working at a defense contractor. And so I thought, all right, well, this is a perfect opportunity. Uh, we already have the relationship established. So, and when you go and, to talk to these people, you never hit them with the thing you want to talk to them about first. It kind of slides into the conversation somewhere, right? You have a bunch of different things, you know, let me tell me about your travel, who'd you meet with, blah, 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 and all that stuff. And, uh, and then towards the, you know, the last quarter of the conversation, you sneak in a little bit of the conversation. Well, so I, I mentioned, um, Hey, there's this person that you sponsored a visa for Sue Ben. Can you tell me about this, a travel visa? And, uh, and he, 
oh yeah, that guy, you know, he, he's all about the dollar, you know, good guy, wonderful, everything. And just tells me glowing things about him. And I thought, okay, this is, this guy's not going to be contributing to terribly well, but uh, you know, if I, if this turns nefarious, so just need to string him along and make sure he gives me answers. But um, in the process of uh, pulling this thing about, you know, we found obvious leads through many different places of the country, many different uh, government agencies. So, I mean, I was able to send leads to the Air Force OSI, I was able to send leads to NCIS. Um, we had, I think, three or four spinoff cases in Kansas City alone. And, uh, and then the one uh, critical lead that I cut out to Los Angeles Division uh, about, you know, hey, this guy's referring to, uh, or sorry, not referring to, he had been showing products of the C-17 um, that were definitely uh, proprietary information, uh, definitely shouldn't, were ITAR controlled, uh, definitely shouldn't have been out in the public space. So someone had to have gotten this to him. I confirmed, uh, had them confirm with Boeing that this was not for public uh, distribution that so now we have we've established crime we've done what we need to do well um the lead quite honestly was very vague it wasn't you know it wasn't my most proud moment so it, it usually follows a case agent phone call right when you you know what you're looking for but you can't explain it too terribly well in the lead so called la and said hey guys you know once the agents got assigned i said here's what i'm actually looking for um what he took has to be you know very close hold and according to what the guy is saying that we've got now on 702 and FISA is, hey, it's it's got to be from a person. He's referring to an individual that's providing this. So, you know, good luck. And uh, they were able to figure it out who. And uh, and that it, that was a massive moment for the case because that that really triggered a very large field office into full gear because they had the supervisors and ASACs in place that understood the importance of what we had just discovered. You know, we had human elements in country, you know, we had insiders or espionage agents right here that were U.S. persons as well as whoever they're in contact with and their travel and so on and so forth. So this case just exploded and it really got the inf got the attention of everybody, including the White House. So I was ended up doing White House briefings and write-ups, you know, towards the end of the case weekly. But uh, I know probably where you're heading me next is, uh, you know, well, how many techniques did you use on this case? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to, like, to like to shop in Seattle, if I recall. He uh, wanted to shop in Seattle, which led to one of the most hilarious moments I think that that surveillance crew was ever able to observe. Um, him and his wife hated each other, and I don't <laughs> mean just the normal husband and wife hate. I mean like I will murder you in your sleep hate. Um, and uh, they had an absolute throwdown in the middle of Costco, like yelling and screaming at each other where they drew a crowd. And, of course, we were there to watch it. So I think those guys uh, and gals that were running surveillance that day were probably finally appreciative of the lead. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good because it, before all this, before L, the, the folks in L.A. got involved, I know we were working with you're working with our unit to try to get some FISA stuff. I mean, let me, we ended up just at this massive, massive collect and it got even more complex as we had to take these, uh, 
inf- the information we were gaining from this and if it was going to say um, ALATS, like I had to share a lot uh, with our friend Ray Gurian, um, had to send things to him up in Canada for him to start working through because uh, he was up there, stationed up there at that time. And, uh, you know, so that leads to trash covers, you know, more human source recruitments. You figure out who all has uh, been in the vicinity of these people when they travel to the United States. Um, we had the business records, um, you know, and of course the digital intercepts, the physical surveillance I mentioned, uh, and it just, and then joint agency cooperation amongst all of that. So it was anytime one of these people would travel, uh, it was, it was, there was, it was not hard to work a 20 hour day, uh, for three or four straight days while they were in country, because there's very little patience, uh, involved when everybody is excited to hear what's going on with these cases and where they traveled and who they're meeting with. Uh, but the nice part is, is, um, for Boston, for example, when he had to take his mom to the hospital, um, I think she got her gallbladder removed. Um, I probably just violated HIPAA or something. Just, just then. <laughs> no, but, you're not, uh, as long as you're not a doctor, you didn't violate HIPAA. So you're good. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, what's, what do you do when you're taking care of your, um, elderly parents, right? You, you do what, is needed. And, and, uh, and of course my office that really in KC, the leadership I had, they didn't really understand, um, what was going on and they wanted 24 seven coverage. Well, you know, that's a big undertaking for any field office, no matter the size, if you're doing 24 seven and, uh, you know, the guy goes to the hospital, he follows the exact direct route, takes his mom directly to the hospital, sits there. And, uh, and I call the team off and, you know, tell the supervisor, Hey, no problem. About an hour later, I get an absolute freak out phone call from my office telling me I'm, you know, basically next to the most worthless agent on the planet because I called this team off like from the hospital where his mom's, you know, she's surgery, there, yeah. she's getting surgery. Uh, what do you expect him to do? So, uh, you know, it, it was nice to get some backing from another field office to say, yeah, that's actually my budget that gets to make that decision and these agents need to go home. Yeah. So. That was nice. Oh, that's good. What um so so how did so how did Subin interface with the Chinese cyber elements? What was the connection there? Um, so it was really this is it was fantastic because it was a traditional you know Chinese guy that's not stationed there all the time. Although his company, uh, Load Tech, uh, was uh, he was. Um, it, it, he was running it like a normal false front. It was fantastic. You know, I'm going to pull all this aviation information and I'm going to do all this stuff. But, uh, he, he would stay in Canada in Vancouver most of the time. And, uh, what actually became kind of an enablement agent to get other Chinese people into Canada. Uh, so, um, that's what really got the Canadians on my side to help, help me out with this case. Um, but, uh, he would traditionally do, um, his communications with the elements over there from intercept, um, that is now public record was via email. You know, it was uh, low and slow, methodical, um, you know, and like any uh, that we were witnessing from these people is they all, uh, they all wanted money on a side game. Right. And, and his, and it was interesting because in his intercepts, while he was saying how important this was going to be to the Chinese government to st- in the best quote we ever translated was uh, stand on the shoulders of the giants um, by stealing all this data. Um, he, and that's, you know, you talk about a rally cry for all of us agents to really, you know, make sure this guy ended up in jail that was it. And, um, but it was, he wanted to make additional money. He wanted to bleed the data that he had stolen and, uh, and had talked about on this intercept and everything else. He wanted to slowly give it 
to the Chinese government so they could maximize the payout that he was going to mm. get from the Chinese government for this. So um, it was it was it was quite remarkable to see, uh, you know, hey, they're they're running a game against their own government that is quite risky for them. You know, uh, that's a communist government. What are, <laughs> if yeah. they found out that he was withholding from them? Uh, no longer payment. He just gets it, has to give it, and then he gets put in prison. And he was he was living in Canada off of a Swiss passport. Is that correct? No, um, I, not a Swiss passport that I remember. I, I, he had he was getting natural, or you know, he was going to get residency in Canada. Oh, okay, um, which is what made them move. So he had, he, uh, I think, just a standard worker visa over there. Same way he was traveling quite frequently over to the United States. So while the Subin case became somewhat of a success for the FBI, as long, even though it took a while to get there, it was not a it was not all um, roses and candy for you. So talk a little bit about what how that particular case led to where you are now. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a harder thing to talk about, but uh, you know I know your listeners and and you are trusted uh, compatriots here. It was it was rough uh, at Kansas City. Um, I don't think they were of the mindset or prepared to handle a case that was going to get this much attention. And when it got attention, either they felt like they weren't getting their biggest, they weren't getting the light shown on them enough, or, uh, you know, this rogue agent, Rob Shudd is out there just doing whatever the hell he wants. Well, it was because they didn't quite understand the way it actually worked in the counterintelligence piece with cyber, you know, and regardless of the lessons we were trying to explain and teach and share, you know, it was, it was more of an ego situation. So, I mean, I, uh, I had an ASAC that, um, had came in right after this thing kicked off and, you know, and, to me, you know, coming from headquarters, I thought we'd have this bit of shared camaraderie saying, hey, you know, I know all the the way that this machine is going to work. I can save all that effort. It's going to be great. And and his biggest concern was that I had two monitors on my desk. Right. And that was <laughs> that awesome. was causing a <laughs> yeah, that was causing a bandwidth delay and making the lives of the IT people tougher. And and I, you know, and I thought he was kidding. Right. I, I honestly thought it was a joke, but uh, that was that was the mentality of he thought two monitors was making the network slow. So, yeah. So I dealt with this ASAC as well because I thought I because he was the CI. Was he CI and Cyber ASAC? He had both programs. I forget. I think he did. Yeah, uh, he was carrying the water for the uh, Joe D. Uh, yes, for a time. yes, exactly. Yeah. And I didn't realize that. So, so let's let's give a little inside <laughs> baseball to headquarters. So at the time, Rob, I'm trying to help Rob with this case as best my small squad can or a small unit can. And at at some point, FBI headquarters. Or, let me rephrase that. Cyber division executives. Um, it was run by Joe Demarest at the time. Was the assistant director. John Bowles was the DAD. And I don't mind saying their names because they're. Uh, there's not much they can do for me, do to me or for me. So um, they got real interested in Sue Bin. I remember every day for about three weeks, there would always be a morning meeting with Demaris that I had to participate in. And the first question he had for three weeks is where's Sue Bin? Like he was under the impression that Sue Bin was like in the country, running around all over the place all the time, came in, came out wherever he wanted to. And I tried to explain he doesn't, he comes in periodically. He may go shopping in Seattle, but by the time we're able to get and stuff up, this happened at least once where we worked all day on a, um, the ASAC in Cincinnati currently. Kevin Rojek was on my unit and he'd worked all day on a, on, or actually for a week trying to get up because we knew he was going shopping based on information you had. 
So by the time we get to cover him and get a surveillance in Seattle, he had basically come into the country and gone back. He had already, he already been here and gone. He, by the time it was up and going, we realized he was gone. He was gone back to Canada. So I, I vis- vividly remember this meeting. I can understand your frustration because I became frustrated. So I remember this meeting with John Bowles where he's talking to, to me and a couple other people about wanting to do a secondary interview of Subin at the border the next time he comes across. Now, I'm not sure where you came down on this particular idea, but my, 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 I came down where this was a horrendous idea. The man, had come, the man had come across the border several times, many times, dozens of times, yep. never been touched one time. And then all of a sudden, we're going to do a secondary interview, meaning that in addition to saying, hey, why are you coming into the United States or, going, or leaving the United States? They pull you off to the side and do a secondary, more detailed interview. That would do nothing but make him understand that the FBI knew who he was. Amen, brother. Yeah, it was, we were at the point in the investigation where we had already said, hey, he comes into the United States enough, we can arrest this guy. You know, we can, we can make this happen. Let's make it happen uh, on one of those times. And, uh, but the only thing you're going to do is make him suspicious. You know, we don't, we don't know at that time if he actually had any uh, counterintelligence training. We had no idea and we kept begging them. And, but yeah, they, they had never, they were, <laughs> they were like a dog chasing a truck, you know, they had no idea what they were going to do once they finally caught up to it. It's like, just settle down, let the big boy, let the big kids that know what they're doing work here. Yeah. They just couldn't get out of the way. Well, the funny thing is his, his, his response to me, I said, this is a bad idea because you'll, you'll, you'll tee him up. He goes, he said, well, I've been secondary many times when I've traveled. And I, in my head, I said, in my head, I thought this, I did not say it because I at least was respectful of the office. My head, I'm thinking, are you a spy? Is is that, is that why they, I mean, that's why you weren't concerned, you dumbass, because. (laughs) So anyway, so this case, this case goes on, you get frustrated and you end up, you end up leaving the bureau, correct? Yeah, the, uh, so I had, because, you know, my SSA in Kansas City was uh, Corey Patrick, and this individual, um, from the moment he arrived in Kansas City to the moment I quit, uh, his mission was to shut the case down. The ASAC I mean, you're talking about. The, the ASAC or Corey Patrick? No, uh, not the ASAC. The ASAC came and went. Uh, Corey Patrick uh, was okay. supporting and pushing information up and trying to shut it down. I mean, his... His, I mean, he looked me in the face and said that, well, you know, I, I, I'm not going to uh, further tarnish that, but I mean, looking into his background makes me wonder why were he was so excited to shut a case down that was going to be the one case to actually punish China for right. what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, he was not supportive. Uh, he, he was afraid of the Los Angeles SSA, so he wouldn't even get on the phone to back me up when I was trying to deconflict items. It, it was just, uh, so there was no support. The original ASAC was crazy, uh, you know, and was running from, you know, as we've seen in the press lately, he was running from sexual harassment charges, abuse of authority. I mean, he was, every office was just moving him along and trying to hide him from everything that was following him. Then the next guy comes in and I'm thinking, great breath of fresh air. Here we go. I've got a chance. I give this whole briefing and I basically explain how the guy has surreptitiously taken for a human element inside the United States, taken uh, a lot of the plans for the C-17 and uh, so I was like, so what are you telling me? I said, I'm telling you, he has stolen the C-17 from the United States. He goes, oh, what do you do? Put it in his pocket, take it out, walk it around. I'm going like, wow, I've already missed again. And, 
you know, it was, it was just, it was shameful of the way these people treated it. And so at that moment I went, wow, okay. And I'm filling out climate surveys, the inspection, you know, as you know, field offices get inspected quite, uh, you know, occasionally. And uh, Kansas city was the recipient of multiple often uh, inspections. And that's in the FBI, we call that a clue. And, uh, and so it was, I, I decided I have to, for my mental health, for my family, I just can't put up with this. I'm going to transfer to headquarters. And, uh, you know, because headquarters wanted me back. You were up there advocating to get me up there. People were saying, yeah, we have a spot for you. We'll make you unit chief. You can, you can reset. Now, that would mean leaving my home, you know, where I grew up, everything else. So it was a, it was a very hard decision, but mentally I had to do it. And, uh, and so in order to block that move, as soon as headquarters called down and said, we're going to handpick this guy essentially for unit chief, they turned around and, uh, and gave me a, a false fake OPR uh, write up so that I could not apply for the job. Right. And that's a, that's a trick within, within management that if you, if someone is under an office of professional responsibility review, they're not eligible to be promoted. Yep. That's exactly. Yeah. So they put the paper down, even though they knew it was horse shit and they, they went with, I even called them out on it when they, they told me, you got to sign this. I laughed right in their face. I have to sign anything. You know, I'll be out of here in a couple of months anyway. And, uh, and so I made up my mind at that point. I said, okay, so they're, they've shown their, they've tipped their hand. They're going to do this. I'm going to go to the private sector, but I'm not going to do it until this indictment is signed. And uh, so I was, uh, I had just landed at a SANS training event and, uh, and I got the call from the, um, my, uh, the um, AUSA out in Los Angeles. And he said, uh, Hey, we, we've got it. They, you know, they just signed it. And, uh, and then I got my call from headquarters, headquarters, my uh, PM up there. He said, yep, they've signed it. And, uh, so I hung, I said, cool, thanks. He goes, man, I'm so proud. I was like, yeah, I can't talk right now. I got to go quit my job. <laughs> and, uh, and I hung up the phone, called the SSA up and I said, you know, here's my two weeks notice. I'm out of here, man. I'm done with you. And, uh, and sent it in writing. And the, then they still, they still were so mad at me at Kansas city. They made me sit outside the uh, security officer's desk. Like I was in detention, like in school suspension for a week. And the security officer who was a good friend and ally, uh, he was like, this is the most ridiculous childish behavior I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> well, I'm very sorry that happened. That happened to you. So you, so you, you quit the bureau with, with how many years in? Uh, I was sitting at 11 years in, oh, yeah, so, yeah. and, and like you'd mentioned, there were so few of us, even at that time, you know, in, yeah. in oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. it had just, you know, we were dying for talent on the cyber squad and let alone people that had, uh, both disciplines under their belt and, uh, and they, they did everything they could to chase an agent out. So they did it. And, uh, but because of those relationships I built through all this casework, you know, and the, and the good uh, people we share with, like the defense contractors, you know, over some beers, I was just sitting there talking to my friends at uh, Northrop Grumman and uh, at that same, uh, at a different SANS training. And he said, I want you to know that if, if you, if you, if they push you too far, you've got a home. And so I made the call and they said, give me 24 hours and they had a job offer in my hands in 24 hours. And it was, it wasn't for some big crazy financial splash. It wasn't for anything like that. It was, uh, it was 
a little bit more than what you're making as a senior GS 13, but um, it wasn't anything that was, that would, you know, like the offer you could not refuse. Right. It was a, you know, this is, this is what I need to do for me and my family. And so, you know, and that's unfortunate because, you know, dream job is FBI agent. Sure. And sure. I had to walk away from it. Yeah. that's, that's, that's too bad when we, we lose the good ones that way. But I mean, the good thing is at least, the private sector recognizes the the cyber skill that you have and some of the investigative knowledge that the FBI at least gives you. So it makes it easy to, 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 to kind of find those gigs. So, but now you, you've got a new job. You're at uh, FireEye. Talk a little bit about what that is, what your plan is with that. And we won't talk to SolarWinds too much, but we'll talk more to the Tradecraft. But so <laughs> what's, what's, uh, what's with FireEye? Yeah. So at FireEye, um, I had a, a, you know, a launched, uh, when I went over with them after an, a year with Northrop Grumman, um, I had a really good opportunity to, uh, learn the sales side and enable, um, the private sector and public sector on how do you use threat intelligence? And so I kind of crawl up the ranks of, uh, eyesight partners, which then was acquired by FireEye. Um, did some management, did some leadership, worked on quality control there, uh, you know, insisted on following the intelligence life cycle for our product development and our information gathering. So right now, uh, my role is senior manager over the advanced intelligence access program. And these are special uh, contracts where our uh, our folks are embedded with the government element that uh, pays for them. So they handle, um, you know, sometimes they're everything from the maturity expert. Uh, you know, they help them grow their program and mature, or sometimes they are merely very tactical and looking through our data for their concerns and their P or their uh, intelligence requirements, pr uh, primary intelligence requirements, PIRs, and uh, and help enable them. So it's a it's a fantastic program, and I manage the team that uh, does their tier three support. So there's a team that supports those individuals out in the field because you know they're they're under the gun, they're sitting in. Uh, the operation centers at these individual places and uh, they need help from time to time or they need us to help them throw together data for a briefing. Uh, so my team uh, works on that and helps uh, mentor and grow the skills of uh, the organization. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful job. Uh, the benefits, the people, the leadership, FIRE is a fantastic organization. And, uh, you know, and I, I could not speak enough praise of the way Kevin Mandia handled this solar winds breach. I mean, if you want to look at a security CEO for the way to handle uh, some handle a bad day and uh, turn it into the right thing, I mean that is uh, I was so impressed. It was fantastic. Yeah, I, I even on LinkedIn I praised that 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 was you know there's not there's there there is no shame in saying that you were victimized of something. So they did a great. I thought they did a great job. But speaking of that particular intrusion, do you think this is a new methodology by nation states to to get into the supply chain and and uh, gain access that way, or is it something they been using up to that point how do you how do you how do based on experience you've seen before where we're at now um you know what's your what's your thought process on that you know it's a fantastic question and and unfortunately no i don't think this is a a new tactic from the adversary unfortunately it's the first time we caught them yeah. and we were able to point to the adversary and say this was a deliberate action against the supply chain and you know that's the scariest thing that we've always talked about all of us uh in this process you know um, lots of 
uh, over beers conversations with the defense contractors during the JSF cases, what happens when they go after uh, these people that don't even realize or are such a, uh, such a insignificant piece of the chain that they become the most significant intrusion vector. And now it's happened. You know, we have found it, we see it. And, um, it's more interesting about their, to me, is the TTP modifications that they've done along the way to get here. Uh, so, you know, we caught them. Now we can say, yes, there's a supply chain tack of a very large vector. You know, Microsoft acknowledging it, FireEye acknowledging it. This is, this is a, a scary moment, but because of this change, it now gets that awareness that we've always been preaching in the FBI for years and years and years is like you said, you're all going to be victims. So it's how do we respond and, and what, what uh, things are you going to put in place to, in your stack and your human stack to uh, both technology stack and human stack to be able to better defend this. And in this case, um, one of the TTPs that um, that have been talked about and is lightly discussed in the fire report, but is being picked on a little bit more by others is um the domestic C2 um, that the adversary used. So, you know, command and control, by the way. Yeah, that's command and control. control. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> command and control. Um, so, you know, it, the supply check tag was what we feared, but how would we see it when it happens? And in this case, they were smart because there was a domestic based command and control that they used, which, you know, we saw that clear back in the day, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, when we were first starting on all this, but because it was so easy to detect, people started, you know, okay, I see what's going on and I see the data flow. Well, you know, what's once was new is now new again, and they're doing it uh, to hide in the local things because we were blocking all the foreign traffic. You know, people were investigating, alerting, those things were happening. So they just went and made it so, okay, well, if I'm somebody they're likely going to get data traffic from, they're not going to alert to that. They're not even going to interrogate that data. I'm going to hide in that noise. And uh, so that is going to make us tweak our signatures, make us uh, change our radar, if you will, redirect it in a different place. So that we're paying attention to this type of, uh, of uh, technique that they're going to be using probably heavily and probably still are, right? They, you know, it's not like we can shut it off overnight. And depending on, on their decision for information gain loss, they're being the bad guy. Uh, you know, they may continue to run with this so that they can get a few more pieces of the puzzle that they're looking for out of this. So I know the news is reporting a lot that this is all Russian based. Do you think China has any role in this? I don't know why they wouldn't um, or why they wouldn't have been using this technique. And because of the way they uh, don't operate the exact same way as Russia, uh, would they use it? Um, I Everything that I'm seeing, you know, and I, our company has been pretty careful to on stating attribution. So this is, you know, my opinion and not the opinion of my companies. But it, I mean, this the sophistication of the attack leads more to something we would see out of a Russian-based actor than a Chinese-based actor. But what do we know about all these bad actors? Is you know, we're they they go to school on these attacks. Mm -hmm. They see it, they emulate it, and they're going to figure out a way to repurpose it for themselves. So, um, you know, it, it's quite likely if this was a if if this was not an internally developed exploit by uh, one actor, it's an it's an exploit that unfortunately may have been developed by somebody and then sold 
to Mm -hmm. multiple bad actors. And there's no reason to question whether that has happened by now. And my hope is, and I've said this on the last two podcasts, I think, and this is just my more of my dream than anything, that I'm hoping that if China's doing this, they did it by stealing it from Russia. Saw what Russia did, decided to go, hey, let's let's steal that idea and or piggyback in or, or whatever so that uh, they can always say, they can always point at each other. They can mis- mispoint one way or the other because we're always going to see that. So how do you see the, the cyber landscape change you know, in the next couple of years? Uh, over the next couple of years, we're going to see, um, because of the freakout and the uh, – the fear that this attack has caused, we're going to see this over and over again. We're going to see multiple supply chain attacks. We're, we're going to, this is going to be copied multiple times and it's going to have major impact. Um, ransomware, ransomware works, you know, they, they have shown over and over again, uh, that for the cybercrime actors and even the uh, nation state actors in some instances, ransomware is a great disruptor. So that's going to continue. Um, I feel that, um, uh, disinformation uh, via either fake news or uh, manipulated news and false personas are going to be stood up and uh, and then um, hijack personas uh, at a level to where um, it isn't so obvious, but they could maybe sneak in things here and there using hijack personas. That's going to cause uh, a lot more chaos, you know, the deep fakes and different things as we, as we get better at detecting that and, and fighting against it. Um, there's going to be a usage period where they, they go after that. Um, I think the, uh, also the underground purchasing of these exploits is, uh, going to continue. Um, it's going to be harder for the adversary, which is, I think, good news, right? Because these types of events, they're a, a financial watershed to the companies. Um, you know, the, the CISOs that have been begging for, you know, more money, more, more tools, more humans, uh, this type of event can, can get that, right? Never waste a crisis and right. uh, to get what you're doing. And, uh, and it's also going to show... Um, because of the great work by FireEye, Microsoft, etc., while they uh, ran this thing down, um, this is going to further show how this is a team sport. We all have to work on this. You know, this is this isn't a governmental or uh, public sector problem or just a commercial problem. You know, we have to coordinate and work together. And these these agencies out there that are helping foster that communication, uh, you know, such as InfraGuard or uh, DC3 out in Linthicum. I mean, these are these are places that are built just to provide resources to make people play nice together, uh, all by similar sets of rules. And I'm excited to see the collaboration uh, even get better. I mean, I, I was I, I was fortunate to see some of it when I was in my bureau career, but uh, you know, everybody I talk to when I'm with FireEye, when I'm talking to customers or internally, it's you know, what are our what are our friends saying? You know, I don't want to call them sources, but what are our friends saying? You know, what are our listening posts uh, talking about about this, and and who else is seeing it? And uh, and you know, together you win together you have far more victories than trying to do this all by yourself that's a great great points all around rob i really appreciate you taking the time best of luck in your new position i hope it goes well i hope you uh stop the bad guys and make us all safe and i appreciate your your work and all that you do thanks so much for your time and for having me on darren all right you have a good week you too bye
So that'll do it for this episode of the Cyber Guy podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to listen, and I hope you will recommend this podcast to your friends. It's available at all the usual podcast distribution sites. And if you have thoughts on the show, questions for future podcasts, or anything else, feel free to email me at darren at thecyberguy.com, cyber spelled C-Y-B-U-R. I've gotten a few emails from folks in the process of or interested in becoming an FBI agent. If you have those questions, definitely email me or hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm happy to answer those questions uh, and help you understand the process a little better and maybe make you a little more comfortable in in where you stand and trying to become an FBI agent or or just even if you're just starting the process of taking the phase one test. So certainly hit me up on that. As always, as you progress through your week, understand the threats that are targeting you, assess your risk and proceed wisely. Thanks for listening. Have a good week.